You're listening to the Just Jazz and Co podcast, the show where you hear the how, why, and what of ambitious careers with me, Just Jazz, and many guests. I'm a multi-passionate, wildly ambitious lover of tea and R&B. I'm also on a mission to guide more high achievers to the careers and lives they deeply desire through coaching. Yep, you heard me. Desire. No shame or secrets about it. Here, we boldly embrace ambition by owning, being, and doing more in our careers. And in each episode, we break down the barriers to creating something that will make you and everyone you know step back in awe while keeping it simple. So what are you waiting for? Let's dive into the episode. Welcome folks to this week's episode of the Just Jazz and Co podcast. Today I have another amazing guest with me. We're going to have a great conversation. Uh, Today I have Ziva Bilal. Hi Ziva. Hi Jazz. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Thank you for joining me. How are you today? I'm very well. Um, Today is a national holiday in Paris and I am in my office, escaping my little family for a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> because just for a few hours. And I know we're definitely going to get into a little bit of your story, of your journey to being in Paris. But before we do, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So my name is Diva Belel and I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And since I was a very little girl, I don't know why, I had this dream of becoming French. And there's really no um, obvious explanation why that might be the case. I don't have any France, French family and um, wasn't particularly connected to Europe. Mm. But there was this notion that started to germinate in my mind that Paris specifically was the place for me to be. And I um, moved to Paris at 25. So I had already started working in New York. And I just realized that if I didn't leave New York at that point, I was going to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the quicksand of New York City life where Mm. you kind of convince yourself that it's the best place on the planet because it's such a hard city to live in. So you have to believe that there's there's a reason why you're sticking it out. Um, So I kind of hit the ejector seat and just decided to go for it and move to Paris. And so that's been 23 years now, almost 24. And I've had many um, careers since I've been living in Paris. I started as a journalist and I was a writer for 10 years. And then I I started my own blog to cover the addresses that I was really excited about, introducing listener, listeners, introducing readers to mm-hmm. hidden addresses in Paris. And that was something that led uh, Yelp to me. Yelp is a, a reviews website yeah. that started in America that's pretty well known. And they were looking for someone to launch the platform in France. And so they recruited me and I was the marketing director for them for almost seven years. And at the end of 2006, during a company-wide um, organizational reorg, they laid everyone off who was working internationally, and that included myself and my team. And it was very, it was very, wow. very shocking and sad. And um, but it was also an opportunity for me to take a step back and think about what I was really 
curious about and interested in knowing more about, and that was uh, personal development. And um, I decided to become a coach. So that's how I became a coach. Is this was a notion that I was interested in, and I was trying to weave as much as I could into my management style and um, and methodology. And eventually, I was able to really explore that and dive headfirst into the world of coaching. And so that was in 2017. And so now it's been around five years that I've been coaching women specifically Mm -hmm. who are at a um, crossroads in their career, who are maybe questioning whether or not the decisions they made since they were younger were really the right decisions. Yeah. Um, If they were doing it for themselves or maybe to satisfy their entourage, their family, or maybe some ambition that was not really mm. calibrated to their heart or their soul or really the skill set that they shine at. So I have been doing that now and it's it's the best it's the best job ever. And um I learn so much every day from the women I coach, just from the material itself also. Um, I'm fascinated with how people become who they become and how they become more and more aligned with, I guess, what they're, I don't maybe it's going to sound a little, a little hooky, but what your kind of true calling is. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely doesn't sound hooky. Um, all of those conversations, all of those things are things that I enjoy for sure. And it's really curious for me, you use the word entourage. What does that look like in someone's career? When I, really, when I use the word entourage, what I've heard a lot from clients of mine is that at some point in their life, they felt like there was an expectation mm. of what they should do professionally that was maybe not explicit, but somehow intuited. And that could, that could be from your, when I could say entourage, that could be your family it could be your peers at school. It could be mm. the friends that you know and who know you in a particular way. And they have a certain kind of expectation of how you're going to show up professionally. Yeah. And maybe it has to do with the way that the social fabric is designed in France as well. People, they forge very deep friendships early on in their lives. A lot of people, even from the time they're in um, maternelle, which is in, um, nursery school. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they still have strong relationships with the people they've known since they were like three or four. And I think that that builds into a, um, image of yourself that has been growing and, and evolving since you were small and that you sort of feel attached to, almost like you need to live up to the version that other people imagine you to be. Yeah. And also in in France, there's a tendency to orient people really early on, on certain kind of professional paths, like, oh, okay, so you're really great at math. You're going to be, you know, go see what it could be like for you to be an engineer. And they, they siphon people out pretty mm-hmm. early on um, because one of the things that culturally people are very um, concerned about is financial security. So 
early on they tried to help you orient yourself towards a profession that's going to be secure, securizant in French. So mm -hmm. financially um, sure and safe. But what winds up happening and what I, what I see often with my clients is that they do that for a while. They take the path that is the path that's maybe the safest um, and that will provide them with the most social recognition, um, some mm -hmm. kind of status recognition. But then they get to a place where they really question like, how did I really get here? Yeah. Who, who was making these decisions? Was it peer pressure? Was it to satisfy what my parents wanted me to do? Because maybe that was something that they did. Um, so when they get to me, there's, there's some questions, like some deeper questions about, I'm not really sure who I am if I don't do this thing that I've always done. It's almost, um, it just makes me think of the whole concept of identity and how much of it is made by us and how much of it is sort of like put on, a, you know, it's almost like dressing up a doll. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like, look, my mum put this jacket on me when I was two years old and I'm still wearing it at like mid thirties, late forties. Um, and I think questioning that can be a really powerful, but also a destabilizing process. I think that's why it's helpful to go through that experience with a coach by your side because because it does run deep it's actually not just a career it is the identity part it, who am I if this is different or not there or not as culturally accepted or you know what does that kind of look like for sure so it's really interesting to hear the cultural differences and I guess for you as somebody who from Brooklyn over into France what were some of I guess some of maybe the other cultural nuances around career between those two places, right? The US where I'm going to use the cliche that we see in London, you know, the American dream and exactly what you're alluding to, right? You get to the tough cities and you, you, you collect those beliefs that allow you to continue and press on and maybe live in the tiny apartment and do the high flying job and still have the high flying social career and all of those things. Like, what were, I guess, some of the other nuances that you picked up on as you did this work in France? Mm. Well, I really believe that, um, well, I, I feel like I'm someone who has my feet planted in two different zones mm. always, even if I'm, I'm, I've chosen to live in France and I feel really connected to the values of this country and um, the quality of life here. You know, I spent half of my life... Um, in America, in my mm. formative, you know, my formative years, you know, absorbing the American ethos of anything is possible, mm. you know, if you just, if you just set your mind to it, or, you know, you'll, we'll find you because there's always a way to find a solution. And also a really strong work ethic and um, determination. So those are the things that I grew up with, and that I really believe in, and I think has, I think that those those values and principles have helped me here mm. um, when things have not gone easily. Because when you're when you're an expat becoming you know an immigrant, um, there are going to be challenges along the way, inevitably, because it's not where you grew up. You don't have the you don't have the entourage. You don't have yeah. the connections. You don't have the culture down. You don't have the language down. 
you don't have the same, everything that comes easily to other people, you have to work that much harder to obtain. Um, and you don't really take any of it for granted when you mm. do get what you get. What I would say is, I think that all of those, all of those different principles and values and beliefs have sort of merged into one big melting pot mm -hmm. where I can bounce around between kind of putting on my American, you know, my American hat and being, you know, the cheerleader and yeah. anything's possible um, when it's necessary also for whatever challenge my client is going through. I can kind of tap into that mindset. Yeah. Um, but that I can also really understand and relate to, um, some of the, I guess the, the feelings of insecurity and doubt and, uh, self-reflection that come with living in a country that is maybe a little bit more hesitant to change, mm -hmm. um, you know, what's amazing about France is that they really question whether or not change is a good thing. Mm -hmm. When, when trends are introduced, you know, there was just a lot of protests that, um, we went through for, for several months because there was going to be, um, a change to the retirement age. So the yeah. retirement age was going from 62 to 64. Anytime mm -hmm. there's a change, people really question it and they, their instinct is to, is to say, wait, I'm not, no, no. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure about this? Um, so things evolve at a much slower pace than yeah. they do in America, where America is just kind of like, let's try it out. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, let's announce it. Press release. It's right. switching next week, folks. Get right. with it. Or even just like when you think about Maybe this is a strange analogy, but look at the flavors of ice cream in America, where it's just like mm. the crazier, the better. Let's, you know, let's, <laughs> let's throw do some cheese popcorn. With peanut butter. Exactly. Let's throw yeah. popcorn into the salted caramel. Let's see what that's like. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Where yeah. like here it's much more, it's refined, it's it's mm -hmm. it's studied, it's been tested. And um I think that that's a really great, weird uh contrast. Um, yeah. example, because in America, people will jump into things a lot more quickly. They'll trust their gut. They won't question so much whether or not it was the right move. They can always go back. Okay. We can change it up. We're here. Change is a much more serious, uh, much more, I guess, um, less intuitive and more of a reflective process. I love how you put that. And it makes me wonder again, like as somebody who's born and raised and spent my entire life in London, made me wonder where we sit on that spectrum in terms of an attitude or an appetite for change, right? I'd probably say the most, the biggest political change in the UK would have been Brexit. Mm -hmm. That was like, okay, why are we doing this? But it was also, you very much got the picture that this is happening regardless. Like we've decided that there's going to be a decision around it. Let's go. And whatever happens, happens. Nothing was ready. Nothing was really thought through. So it was almost like a bit in between where it's just like, oh, okay, we're just going to go for it and like drag the people along. Um, and this is not meant to be an episode about politics by any means, but 
it does make you think how much of that then trickles down into our own lives. Because I can imagine what that then, what the feelings that that elicits in you when you have an appetite for a change in your own career, you know, even reflecting it back on you, what was that like the moment you decided like it's time to go to France for your entourage, your family, your, I guess your existing network? Mm. Was that like a, yeah, go for it? Or was it like, okay, this is interesting. Mm. (laughs) What was that moment like for you embracing that desire for Mm. that specific change, especially knowing that that's been something that has kind of been on your heart your whole life? Well, I think since it was on my heart for my whole life, it wasn't a shock to Mm -hmm. to anyone. Um, And, you know, I think the person who was impacted the most was my mom. I'm an only child. And, um, she, you know, she never, um, discouraged me from following this, this path because she, you know, first of all, she's an amazing mom and she's always been encouraging to me to kind of connect back to what I really want, Mm. um, and to take risks. So she was always very supportive to me, um, even though, the consequences are, you know, have really impacted her quite considerably considering I'm the, her only child. I now have two Mm. kids, two grandkids, her only two grandkids that she doesn't see as enough as enough as she'd like. And so, um, but I didn't know that, you know, getting on the plane, I don't think that anyone really was able to predict that it would be a forever trip. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it was, it was, presented i i the only way i think i was able to get on the plane was because i told myself it was going to be an experiment i don't think i would have been able yeah. to say yes this is the move of my life i'm never coming back home mm-hmm. so um and i think that w- tying it back to change you know sometimes change can be, be very daunting when you when you think of it as a a finite thing when you say, all right, if I'm going to change careers, it's almost as if you're jumping off a cliff. Like I've been doing this one thing for most of my life. And if I stop, I'm like jumping into thin air and it's going to be terrifying and I'm not going to have anything to grasp onto. And I think that that's just, it's a, it's a trope that's very common Almost as a way of keeping yeah. us safe. Let's keep a you know oh, yeah. keep keep you safe where you really you know you know the territory well, and you don't you can't yet imagine that there are going to be other things that emerge as you're jumping off the cliff. Maybe wow, I see you know I see something in the horizon, or hey, there's this person yeah. next to me too who's also jumping off a cliff. It's just you have. I find that change is a lot easier to accept when you are focusing on something that is much closer to you. So instead of saying, I'm going to move to Paris for the rest of my life, is that really the right decision? Yeah. I'm going to be leaving all the people I know and love. My All my family is in America. All of my best friends were in America. That would have been way too much for me to absorb and I think to process. But if I say I'm going to try it out for a little bit, then I can always come back. Yeah. That was a different, a much different frame. And I even had a therapist back at the day, and then back when I was living in New York, who I always think of as uh, someone who 
was a real enabler mm-hmm. because she told me, um, she's like, Ziva, you, all you have to do is get on the plane. And, you know, when you arrive in Paris, if you decide to get back on the plane coming home, you can do it. But in order to honor this desire that you have, that you've been, you know, growing inside of you for so long, you just need to get on the plane. It lightens it. I think when we think about the decisions that we make under duress versus the decisions that we make when it's completely an option and we're sitting in that seat of just complete agency like I can make I have permission from myself to make this decision and to unmake it and to remake it and change the shape of it and all of those things um they're really really important for us to remember um as we kind of do that because otherwise it it feels huge you know, it feels like something that has to come with a PR campaign and it has to feel like something that is uh, quote unquote sensible, right? I need to, this needs to be a strategic move. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes, it's so, it's like you're, you're like the head of a organization, you know, hmm. you, when you start to think about all of the different ways that that could potentially, you know, destroy yeah. your life, you just don't do it. Yeah. A hundred percent. And even using the parallels of it being a strategic thing versus an experiment, I think what we forget, and this is something that I didn't quite realize until until I started to work for different organizations and speak with other people who are in senior leadership, all strategic decisions are based on an experiment, whether it's an experiment of a random person who's put it into a theory or a tool or a model, or whether it's an experiment that's happened somewhere in the organization or that was piloted, it starts off from having that wide open space. So it serves in some way, shape or form, right? The strategy is not as purely strategic. We have all the answers. It's super binary. It's true, false. It's yes, no. Um, Because that then wouldn't work, right? It's a living and breathing thing. And our careers are that as well. And we grow and learn. So I think having that space for you to get off the plane and go, I ate it means that you go there with no other job but to just figure out mm-hmm. how it fits. Yeah. How does it feel? How does it feel yeah. being on the other side of that plane, getting off, yeah. breathing the air, walking down the street, you know, going to a market, talking mm. to someone, sitting at a cafe. What does it feel like? Does it feel yummy? Yeah. <laughs> or, or do you want to like, you know, crawl into a hole? You yeah. won't know unless you go. Yeah. You can't possibly it's know. So can No one can tell you. Yeah. Nobody can. You can read yeah. everything. You can do all the blogs, the reviews, the documentaries. Right. But unless it's you with your, you know, with your nervous system in that space, you will never really know. This episode is brought to you by Just Jazz Private Coaching, the six-month one-to-one experience for high achievers to carve their unique careers free from burnout, overwhelm, and underwhelm. With challenging and curious conversations, we get knee-deep in all the things getting in the way of you having a hell-yeah career instead of a career that feels meh. If this sounds great to you, book a call today at justjazz.co forward slash coaching, where we will map out the what and how of working together. Take me back to that moment when you moved to France. 
where was your career at that point? What were you doing? Did did the move mean you shifted industries at that point? What was that like for you? I mean, when I was living in New York, I had I had some funny funny first jobs. Um, mm-hmm. There was no I I didn't have any career goal um, vision current red line. There was, it was just kind of like, Wah! the only thing that I knew I wanted was to live in France. So mm-hmm. my first, I had a first job living in New York where I was, um, I worked for Calvin Klein jeans, folding jeans in new pop-up shops because my, I had a cousin who worked there. <laughs> Love it. Love the nepotism. <laughs> There's more nepotism. I also, my, my, my stepdad has a video store and I worked at the video store since I was, 14 on the weekends. And then after college, I made it to manager. And that's what I did for a year or two. I can't remember. That was a lot of fun. And because of the video store, I ran into someone who I went to college with who was working at a film and photo archive in the neighborhood. And he, um, he told me they were hiring and I wound up getting a job there. And so I was the manager of the video division of this film and photo archive. And that was a lot of fun, but I knew that's not where I wanted to be. And so I didn't feel like I had a career that I was giving up or even notions of any skills that I could draw from. When I came to Paris, I, um, and I realized that I wanted to stay the first, the first question I had to ask was like, so how, how can I stay? What do I need to do to stay? And in order for me to earn the, the credentials to stay, I needed to have the first step was getting a student visa. And in order to get a student visa, you have to have a certain number of hours that you're learning. And so I was really into photography. So I got in, I enrolled in a photography school and I also enrolled at the Alliance Francaise because that made sense. And so I had enough hours to get my student visa and I was allowed to work um, a little bit on the side. And by chance, I wound up um, being introduced to this American expat who was the editor of a fashion magazine in Paris called Dutch Magazine, which was the mm-hmm. best magazine that no longer exists. Um, <laughs> just trust me. It was yeah. amazing. It was so good that we got into a lot of trouble um, with the advertisers. But so I wound up <laughs> getting a job as um, a, a writer there. Well, first it was just kind of working at the office and answering phone calls, which helped my French. Yeah. And um, and then little by little, she let me start writing little blurbs for the for the magazine and so I started writing about exhibitions about cultural events and she eventually gave me the um the beauty division the beauty section because she mm-hmm. had, was she had had enough with that and so I became a beauty editor at this yeah. magazine so that was a lot of fun so um I kind of fell into journalism um accidentally and it was something that was funny because when I was in college, I always thought of myself as a terrible writer. Mm. Um, I just believe that everyone else wrote a lot better than me. And so it was a little bit of a amusing turn of events for me yeah. to actually earn my living writing. Writing. 
and in French, I'm assuming. Well, no, that, that was in English. That no, was that in was in English? English? That was okay. in, yeah, because it was in English. I know, that would have been insane. Yeah. It was, that, it was, that was in English. Um, and it was really good practice writing these, you know, these beauty blurbs because there isn't very much to say. Mm. <laughs> or there wasn't very much to say back then in 2000. The beauty industry was pretty, it wasn't as interesting as it is right now. Um, and so it was almost like a creative writing exercise, trying to find something, infuse some kind of personality into, into beauty projects. But so to make a long story short, I did, I wound up writing and being a cultural reporter for 10 years. So that was like a, a long stretch of time. And, um, and today it's something that I think has served me really, really well interviewing people is something that I had to practice over and over and over again. And, um, and I realized what I love the most about the writing a story was the interview itself. I didn't actually want to go and then write the story. I just loved the moment of spending time with someone and entering their world and trying to understand how they became who they are and what made them decide to do whatever it is that they did. Because clearly if I was interviewing them, they were doing something that was interesting. So just trying to connect the dots to, okay, so when did you decide that you were interested in this and who was your, who was your mentor and how, how do you see the world? Really just understanding like how people see the world and how that shows up in the work they do. I cannot resist getting a little bit meta with that and asking you that question, right? How do you see the world and how does that show up in the work you do? So I, I'm fat. I mean, I'm fascinated by people's stories. I'm always, even if I'm walking down, walking down the streets and I pass some random person, I can't help but wonder how they see the world. I'm always interested in one, in un, trying to unravel what makes someone tick, what makes them unique. What's that little nugget inside of them that makes them the, you know, special because there's no other version of that on the planet. And, um, more and more, I realize that that's my shtick, you know, that's my, that's what I, that's what I do. I can be sitting with someone and I'm just like needling a little bit, trying to understand how they see life. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to align with my, the way I see it. Um, but it's kind of giving them, giving them the space to, to hear through our conversation that they are seen and understood and, and valued for the way that they see and experience the world. So that's become, I feel like that's more and more kind of what my, what I'm here to do, um, is to help other people see and understand themselves and to and to grow into whatever version of themselves is is aligned with who they are at that point maybe it's not going to be it'll it might change over over a period of time but to kind of walk along with them on the path as they're making that discovery yeah what are some of the things that i guess your own transitions i guess have taught you? Well, there have been some big ones. The, you know, the biggest moving 
from the U.S. to France, then changing careers from journalism to marketing and from the marketing to to, to coaching. I think that um, my transitions have some kind of uh, logic to them. Maybe I don't. I, ha- I it's part of my my quest to understand them even more, as if there's some kind of divine logic to it all that I haven't figured out yet. Um, but they've taught me that I have a lot of resilience and that I have a lot of creativity and that I can reinvent myself and that, um, transitions are, are opportunities to grow deeper into the next version of yourself. And they could be moments where there's a lot of emotional difficulty and, and, and darkness or just complexity, because that's what you're either, you're kind of cruising around, cruising along, and then you get to, you get to a big milestone and it brings up a lot of emotion and it's not necessarily an easy phase, but I've always found that I always get to a better place. Um, that there's some kind of deep learning or enlightenment that comes not during, but after the transition. And so I, then I like to go back and, and kind of revisit what was going on to the best of my ability. But during the transition, it's hard as hell. I mean, when I took that, when I took that plane ride to France, I cried, you know, for most of it. There was a woman next to me. I had to say like, I'm actually making this decision myself. This is okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. This is a moment. Right. Like, I'm (laughs) sorry. No need to call the, like, stuff. You did not hit the jackpot on this (laughs) one. But, like, I'm I'm not crying because I'm I'm distraught. I'm crying because this is is intense. This is an intense moment. And there's a lot coming up. There's a lot I'm saying goodbye to. In the hope and in the expectation that there's a, there's a, there's a reason behind it. There's um, something good is going to come out of it, but you don't really know during that phase. It just feels terrible. Oh, I feel that way by, for, you know, about a lot of stages in my own career. Um, and it is true in that moment. It just feels like absolute hell on earth. It just feels like a bunch of uncertainty. It feels like, oh my gosh, am I ruining my life? What's happening? Or, you know, and they've always turned out to be some of the greatest gifts in hindsight. And some of those quite monumental moments in my career. So whether that for me has been changing from hospitality to property, property to tech, being made redundant times one, being made redundant earlier this year, like all of these have just opened up new horizons for me, but also created a a space to focus or refocus. Mm. there's an element of, you know, I can imagine you being on that plane and it very much is like a visceral feeling of it's me and whatever I've packed in my bag and we're going to go and approach this situation. Mm. That's it. There's no, there are no distractions because I'm facing forward and that's what's ahead of me. Um, And those can be also some of the most powerful moments. They can sometimes feel quite lonely, but overall, you're always with yourself, if that makes sense. You know, I'm not saying that loneliness isn't a real thing, but you, you're kind of, it's it's you and all the versions of you that have waited for this moment. Mm. 
so you can kind of get strength from that and from those moments and i think um you know even before we recorded we were talking a little bit around the listeners of the podcast and i said i'm not really sure who they are but the episodes (laughs) that they seem to love are the ones that are really just authentic and open um about not only the i did this amazing thing but like this is what it felt like like i was gonna throw up i was Mm -hmm. crying on the flight right um because i think that's the part that we don't see and we don't see it sometimes because folks don't feel safe to share it or don't realize the value in sharing that Mm. for somebody who's listening or is able to observe but also because i think a lot of the work that we do when we share our stories, you know, both of both of us are coaches. Part of our work involves sharing our own journey and being able to say, this is how I know I can help you, right? Mm-hmm. Combining my lived experience and perspective with these skills, right? Coaching is a skill, like learning to bake bread. It's a skill. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a space there where I think we don't realise what we're doing as we plant those seeds, but it's important for us to do so, to let folks know I came through the other side um, and I survived it. I came through the other side and this is what I learned on the way. These are the gifts that I brought out of the cave. Um, And this is what it looks like and to know and have so many different nuanced examples of you will survive. Yeah, (laughs) basically. Yeah. I mean, there's so much in what you just said that really resonates. Um, I think that we don't hear enough about the the true the true path of transitioning from mm. whatever that kind of transition is about. We we often celebrate, you know, the ribbon coming and the ribbon cutting and this, you know, the champagne reception and and um, the thirty under thirty, like. Someone's here. It's where where our eye is always plugged into the the goal, the arrival, the mm. ultimate destination. When there is no, fi- I mean, the only finite destination is where we're all going to wind up, and you know, um, yeah. the rest of it is that's life. Life is it's about evolving always. And I think that when we do have certain goals in mind and they seem really out of reach, we can say, well, I'm not going to be, I I can't be that person that I see in the magazines. Um, I don't have what that person has. I, Mm. I'm not as disciplined enough. I'm not as, I'm not as, you know, educated enough. I don't have this, the, you know, I don't have the degrees. I don't have the skill set. But all of those people went through some path of questioning and difficulty and struggle and doubt and insecurity and fear. And if we hear more of those stories, what they're truly about, what it truly is like to go through go along a path where you're, you're pushing yourself to attain some kind of goal. Um, I think it would make all of us feel a lot more motivated to embark on something similar. If we're really, if we really feel inspired to do so, because we know that there's not, there's nothing wrong with us. Our fears Mm. and our doubts and our insecurities doesn't mean that they're real, that we, that we have to just stay with them and abide by them because everyone has them. 
I think it's normalizing it. I think that's a huge, I do a lot of work around imposter syndrome and I like to call it imposter experience because then it doesn't feel like something we've labeled ourselves with. But the biggest thing that it does is it isolates us and lets us think this is a problem with me that I'm having this experience. I'm having these thoughts and these doubts. Um, and that inherently stops us from wanting to get help or reaching out for support or reaching out for an empathetic space because we don't think there is one. It's like, they're not going to get it. If I describe this, it's going to sound wild. So no, let me just keep it to myself and kind of deal with it. And I think there's so many other spaces in our careers, but also our lives at large that are like that. And I think for me, that's a huge reason why community is a huge part of what I'm focusing on in my business going forward and having that community for high achievers to share the parts that they think no one will understand and witness someone go, no, I totally get it. That was me last week. <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> and, right. I did that. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, you could just try this thing out. Exactly that. And I think it's that piece where you're talking about within your work with clients is, is folks being seen. And I think in many ways we take for granted what it feels like to truly be seen. You know, we maybe have that handful of relationships of folks who you could sit in silence and say one sentence and they'd get the whole context, backstory, front story, what that truly means. They'll be able to absorb it all for what it is. But those spaces are very, very precious. Um, but when we have those spaces, and for many of us, we have those in our personal lives, they can be so nourishing. They can be so empowering. So the more that we find these spaces, whether it's around motherhood, whether it's around being an expat, whether it is around learning a language, whether it is around whatever it may be, those then become inherently validating and empowering and engaging for us. It's not just like a place to be, it's a place to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely think private coaching is a powerful place for that. Group coaching is a place for that um, because they're where we're given permission to just be our true, true selves, right? They'll have someone like myself or you, Ziva, going, well, what do you think? Mm -hmm. What right. do you want? Mm -hmm. What do you desire? How did that make you feel? And it's like, oh, me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that especially when you're having um, a difficult time deciding where you want to be growing into professionally, uh, going back to what we said earlier about the entourage and the the pressure of the groups, because there could be groups that are very nourishing for you, where you feel like you can show up and just, you know, let loose and let all of your vulnerabilities be be seen. But then there might be some other groups where it's not really the practice, or that's not mm. what the intention is for that in that space. So one of the things that happens often when I have a client who is working on making a transition and is still in that early phase, it's almost like, um, you know, when you're gardening and you have little, you know, little buds that are starting to emerge out of the earth, but you need to kind mm. of protect them, put a little, make sure that the dogs don't trample on them or or pee on them, you know, you need to yeah. put a little wire fence. <laughs> we need a little fence. We need a little <laughs> mesh. <laughs> put some mesh around that, the emerging, the emerging vision or the emerging ambition, the emerging 
goal because it's still a little fragile. Um, sometimes I talk about this in my client sessions is maybe creating a, a group of people who you know are going to be able to preserve that fragility as well. They're going to be able to um, help you establish deeper roots, um, more resilience, and help you refine even more what the the energy or the the, the the desire is behind this goal, whereas some other people are just not going to get it. They're not going to be able to do that kind of work with you. So I think that community is important and at a certain stage, at a stage in, of a transition that's a pretty big one in your life where your identity, as we discuss, is, is shifting. There are going to be some people who you love that are really, really close to you who aren't going to be able to support you because yeah. they don't see you that way or they've never seen you that way. And there's something that's being triggered. If you shift something about your life, um, it might make other people really nervous and scared. So you also have to be really um, honest with yourself about how you feel in certain circles. And is Are you feeling supported in that circle? Are you feeling that you are being judged and... Um, you're being triggered and probed in a way that's not nourishing for you. So at some point in yeah. the transition, I think it's important to take stock of where, where do I feel like I'm going to get the kind of support that I really need right now? Yeah. What's your career teaching you right now, Ziva? Well, I mean, it's been now, I'm in my like fifth year of coaching. And I was thinking about that. I was like, wow, this is, yeah, this is, I'm doing it. Um, this is, <laughs> I felt I'm the not... same way. I celebrated five years in January. I just okay. sat with myself and I was like, yeah, I, was I like, you go. I have been a coach. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because I, I, I think it's, it's teaching me that I am in the right place, that I'm definitely mm. in the right place. Um, this was not a fluke. And I think it's teaching me to be more, uh, to feel like I have stories and that I have other skills too that I can weave into my career that maybe the journalism and the interviewing, which I I did for a while and I loved, I can, I'd like to kind of weave those, weave those skills and I guess that perception of, of, of what helps grow people into, into my work. Um, I think I'm feeling more confident in what I do. Um, it's teaching, my career is teaching me that this is my, you know, this is my playing field too. It's, there's so much that you can do with, um, with your job when you're an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. There, there are no, you know, there's no one telling you, yes, this is, you need to go down this particular path or no, which is, can be challenging because you're the one who, the you're the one who has to make you. right, you're right, right. You're <laughs> the, like, you're uh... the boss. You're the boss. Sometimes it's nice to not be the boss. Um, mm-hmm. but I think my career is teaching me that I can have a lot of fun and I can be really creative and that there are all different parts of me that I can, you know, tap into and, and, you know, decide to nurture at certain points, depending on who I'm working with, um, depending on what the challenge is. And so I think it's, some, I'm at a place where I'm having a little bit more fun. It's feeling a little less, I've got to get it right. 
I don't know if you mm-hmm. felt that way in the beginning where I felt still felt like I was being, you know, observed by the people who gave me my <laughs> certification. Like, it's like, you can't just wing it. It's just like, <laughs> but I don't want to talk about this topic anymore. I want to specialize in it. I felt that way when I moved from being a life coach to being a career coach. It feels like all eyes are on you and it's like, nobody cares though. Right. Nobody right. cares. <laughs> yeah. There's no like hidden camera in the, you know, in the coaching, in the coaching cabinet. Yeah. Um, so I think in the beginning I was really trying to prove myself. Um, and I was still kind of a little unsure, but now, I mean, I, I think it's important to always question, uh, and sharpen your skills and make sure that you're doing the best job you can for your, for your clients. But I'm at a place where I'm a little more, um, settled. I'm feeling more settled Mm -hmm. in where I am. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience, your perspective, your journey with us today. Where can folks connect with you, your work, everything? Well, um, there there is my website, which is zivabelel.com. So you can find me there. And there is all sorts of interesting information from clients that I've worked with about what their experience has been like. I also have a blog. Um, I have a newsletter. I have some free tools that you can get when you sign up to my newsletter for some visualization. Um, uh, it's a visualization guide with three different tools that you can use to just start imagining what a new chapter might look like for you. But the fresh off the press news is that I'm also starting a podcast of my own. Amazing. And so by the time this is released, it will be available. And the name of the podcast is called On Becoming. And it's a podcast that celebrates the um, kind of undiscovered and hidden journey of transition that women have embarked on in order to become the version of themselves that they are today. Mostly it's conversations with entrepreneurs and creators and artists who have made some kind of interesting overhaul over the course Mm -hmm. of their life. This first season, I'm focusing on people like me who have had, not had, but who have left their country of origin to go somewhere else. And through that travel to another place that they've been able to tap into a deeper part of themselves. And so I think it's that's a really interesting theme that I wanted to explore. And so that's what the first season is all about. So you should look into yeah. your, you know, look at your favorite podcast platform and, and search for On Becoming and subscribe and say hi to me. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so, so much again, Ziva. We'll definitely have all of those links in the show notes and in the blog version of the episode. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Jazz. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for the conversation. Don't forget to reach out with any gems you took away. My DMs and inbox are always open and waiting to hear. And if you liked this episode, you should probably join the crew. So sign up to the Monday Memo to get weekly messages that put you back at the center of your ambitious career. With passion-filled musings created to educate and inspire, you'll have everything you need to fuel your ambitious career this year. Go to justjazz.co forward slash join and I'll see you there. Thank you.